All right, welcome to Use Floodians. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Halper, and look at this beautiful <laughs> mug, Oops, which I have a spoon in. Right, and I don't have mine yet, so but you got uh, a Snoop mug. I got a Snoop dog. Hey, mug. that's true. Snoop, come on the show. <laughs> that's right. He's got to come on. Yeah, so more time has passed. Has life really changed for the better at all? Don't think so. Probably not. That's we should have a new podcast that's just you know philosophically depressing every week and just ponders how how bad things are. A sort of Schopenhauer like oh yeah and, yeah. Type. How about the Schopenhauer hour? The show. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Good, right. Schopenhauer's favorite puns. Yeah. That, that that would be a really short podcast. I'm Schopen at the bit about that. <laughs> Schopen at the bit. <laughs> Oh, man, one of history's funniest people. So a lot to get to. We have uh, one of our favorite guests, oh, yeah. friend Great of show, guest. Glenn Greenwald, is going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of media stories this week, and he was sort of in the middle of, of uh, a couple of them. So we wanted yeah. to ask him about, about that. And he had a lot to say, uh, as always, and um, a lot to get to in the news. So I guess we should just plow ahead, right? Let's, yeah, let's, let's go, go into let's the. Do it. For food groups. So, uh, as people know, this is uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you have for Democrats suck this week? So I have. Uh, it, they're not very substantive, but um, I have a runners up. I want to give to Kamala Harris. Um, if we could just tweet. Uh, is click it on Kamala that. or Kamala? I don't know. I really should know this. What I is it? I think it's Kamala. All right, Kamala. Because because I. Oh, right, because Mamala. Right. Yeah, I I got killed for for mispronouncing her name. So okay, so let's let's go to Kamala. Um, let's check out this tweet by someone who uh, worked for works for the Biden campaign, the Biden Harris campaign. So um, Sarah J. Galvez, who works for the Biden campaign, tweeted out this gif of Kamala, of Kamala getting off of uh, a plane in California and tweeted Kamala the Harris in Tim's. I repeat, our next vice president in Tim's. Tim's, of course, being Timberlands, Timberland boots. And uh, it's just a very kind of like slight queen, yes, queen, substance free. I'm so excited that our vice president is going to be. I like I like the, uh, the the blatant product placement. I mean, we might as well just have the vice presidency. just do it. Sponsored next, right? by, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sponsored <laughs> by Tim's. Yeah. Well, the good news, if you like the Timberland motif, is that um, Tony Pasnansky is offering uh, some new art. Kamala loves Tim's and Tim's love Kamala. DM if interested in this piece will add to and a follow to the order. And so it's a piece of paper and it has a Timberland boot and a quotation bubble coming out of it that says vote for Biden Harris. And then at the bottom left is a stick figure in which looks like kind of galoshes, but I guess they're supposed to be Tim's. Then from that stick figure is a quote thing that says Kamala rocks the Tim's. And then there is a signature and all of this can be yours uh, if you order it online. We should in fact get him to do some useful idiot stuff. That sounds um, great. Yeah, but that that was just a runner up. I got my main prize goes to um, Joe Biden. And this again, not to tweet my not to toot my own tweet. But uh, if we could just go to this, uh, I have a little three part Twitter feed, as we'll see here. Uh, and this is true. This is not manipulated video. But Biden spoke uh, at an event to kick off Hispanic Heritage Month, I guess. I know what you're going to play. I got suckered by this, but go ahead. Yeah. All right. So here's the original video. I just have one thing to say. Hang on here. <laughs> All right. 
Dance a little bit, Joe. Come on. I tell you what, if I had the talent of any one of these people, I'd be elected president by acclamation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, hello and happy Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month. So it's so painful. That's what we call Hispandering. Um, <laughs> I, didn't I don't make have a problem term. with that personally, but go ahead. Yeah, You're pro-Hispandering. Um, but I just want to point a couple things out. So one is that that song Despacito is uh, the chorus to that in, and I translated it to English is slowly. I want to breathe in your neck slowly. I want to undress you in kisses slowly, firmly in the walls of your labyrinth, slowly up, up, up. <laughs> I want to see your hair dance. So the that, walls of your labyrinth. Yeah. Yeah. There's more. There's like, I want to write the manuscript of your body. I want it. You made it to drive you crazy until you can't remember your last name. As apellido rhymes with those words. Anyway, uh, it's a great song. So um, there's that. And then Donald Trump, because this was like such a trollable moment. Donald Trump tweeted this out, which was like kind of amazing, I have to admit. And as it says underneath, it says manipulated media. I just have one thing to say. (laughs) Hang on here. Fuck the police coming straight to the ground. Young nigga got it back because I'm burning. And the other fellas, so police think they have the authority to kill a minority. Fuck that shit because I ain't the one for a punk motherfucker. I'll tell you what, if I had the talent of any one of these people, I'd be. I'd be pretty good, like right? Oh my god, I'm sorry. And then and Trump the tweeted that United video. States actually did that? He didn't do that, I don't think, but he retweeted it. He quote tweeted and said, What right. is this? Yeah, yeah. What is this all about? He tweets. What is this all about? (laughs) And the person who tweeted or the account was uh, the United Spot. Joe Biden has just one thing to say, and it ain't good. Listen to this. And then, okay, so then I did a, I added one more thing to it, and then we can, then we'll stop referring to my tweets. But I don't even know if you're going to like this part, but I, I just thought of this song immediately. And I think we should encourage, actually, we should encourage our viewers and listeners to add their own remixes to 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 biden right like yeah i've already seen a couple saying. of them so. oh really okay well let's yeah. let's look at mine it's not that good but just to inspire people and show them sure. they can do better let me guess yeah i guess i don't know if you'll be able to it's very specific i just have one thing to say hang on here literal it's not that funny but i it, actually don't get it i'm so I'm so well do you know that song no it's supermodel work cover girl uh, that. it's by rupaul but it but she says i just have one thing to say uh, i have one thing to say oh which he does anyway. right well yeah he says i just have one thing to say right. it's really not funny it's just like a it's self-referential like a, yeah anyway people can do better what what song would you do for that well, I, I'm sure you've seen the the, the Cardi B song uh, has, oh, been, nice. has been put in there. Um, I, I think I think I saw Sugar Walls. I'm not I'm not sure. What's that? The old Sheena Easton song. There's just a lot of I saw a lot of people putting filthy stuff in there. Yeah. But the, oh, I, see, yeah. I can't believe Trump retweeted like. And what did he say? Uh, what is this all about? Jesus. <laughs> that's very restrained for him. You know, uh, that's what he does all the time, though. What there's a. There's a technique, uh, there's a there's a rhetorician, a professor of rhetoric who taught me a term that he uses called paralipsis, 
which is where you say something by not saying it. Uh, okay. uh, where you say, well, I, I, you know, I can't believe I would never say that. I would never say that, you know, that blank. And he says that he does that all the time. It's one of his favorite techniques is to sort of imply by not implying. So, uh, but I actually genuinely laughed at that, which is, which is, which is a bad sign. You know, it's, it's not a good sign, I have to say, for Biden that he's just so easily made fun of. Although Trump is too. Let's just let's be fair. Yeah, about that. he is. Yeah. But all the jokes have been done at this point. I know. Right? Anyway, that was really, that, that was funny. I actually laughed yeah. at that. So, yeah, viewers, do your own. Do your own. Yes. Yeah, and send us in any that you have. So, I have something far less funny. Mm-hmm. It's uh, for Republican sect this week. Uh, there was big news actually, sort of just today, that came out. Uh, and it's a congressional report about air crashes. Did you hear about this? Mm mm. I'm sorry, the House Transport Committee issued a report that they worked on for, I think, 18 months about a pair of 737 crashes. And this is going to be a big, important thing in the airline industry because it's a major comment on Boeing. And there were a lot of lobbyists who were were tied up in this whole thing. And I actually read the entire executive summary this morning. And it was a horrifying thing, and I'll get into what it is in a minute, but the Republicans immediately dismissed the report because this this is the thing about why we always originally hated Republicans because they're all bought off by right. these rich companies that, that do terrible things. So despite the fact, and you'll, you'll hear how horrifying this is in a minute, the Republican statement uh, from Sam Graves and Garrett Graves of uh, Louisiana was expert recommendations have already led to changes and reforms with more to come. Uh, these recommendations, not a partisan investigative report, should serve as the basis for congressional action. So the Republicans basically just said this report is not interesting. The Democrats, if you if you read this report, uh, basically what happened is they had a pair of 737 crashes and what they found out is that the Boeing designed this plane, this new version of the 737, which has a long and ugly history uh, on its own, with a, a an override system, a thing called the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, that essentially steers the plane by itself uh, without the pilots knowing about it. And uh, this is what this is what it says it does. The new system had the ability to trigger non-pilot commanded flight control movements that could place the airplane into a dangerous nose down altitude that challenged the pilot's ability to control the aircraft. So there is a, a, an automated computerized system in the new 737 that has the ability to, to steer the plane straight down without pilot input and uh, they documented a couple of incidents where this resulted in crashes crashes one of them being in indonesia and they also talked about what happened with the airline in indonesia the day before a day before the actual crash there was a different flight where this happened and the they only averted uh, disaster because quote a third deadheading pilot who occupied the jump seat inside the flight deck recognized what was occurring and provided instructions to the two active pilots that enabled them to regain control of the airplane so basically only because there was another pilot in the uh, cockpit who actually knew how this system worked were they able to regain control of the aircraft and avoid a, th- a third crash and he was listening to the grateful dead at the time what's a deadheading <laughs> De- deadheading is when you uh 
when you're flying in a plane, if you actually, if you go in the cockpit, you'll see there's a, there's an extra little jump seat that's in there. Okay. Uh, and that's called the deadhead seat. Got it. Deadhead uh, so okay. when it's set up, that's how pilots fly back and forth between cities. Oh. They, they use the deadhead seat when they're not, when they're not on duty. Right. Anyways, so this is, this report is devastating to everybody. It's devastating. What's the to, point, but, by the way, of that though? Like, why would that ever be invented? Something that overrides a pilot's. So it, it had something to do, like, it's supposed to happen if, I guess, the, there's some kind of a wind thing that ha that happens. They're supposed to react to it automatically to prevent a disaster. The reason this was the the mistakes happened is because the sensory part of the plane was was um, they had they had an incorrect sensory system that led to this malfunction. But this is this is devastating for everybody. It's devastating for Boeing. It's devastating for the airline, right? Because uh, basically Boeing doesn't tell the air didn't tell the airlines about this. The airlines didn't tell the pilots about this. Uh, so it's it's like your worst nightmare if you're if you're an airline passenger, and the, the Democrats did the report and they used okay. like some of the strongest language I've ever seen in one of these reports. They called it uh, all these things the pernicious result of regulatory capture, which I've never seen anybody actually use the term regulatory capture as in, in politics before. So one of the reasons I want I just wanted to bring this story up is because this is this is a sort of snapshot into why things you know happen and don't get fixed is even if you have even if you get to the like the very last point of the process and you're lucky enough to get a congressional committee investigating and they do and they correctly identify a problem there's basically no guarantee that anything is going to get done because you still need the additional step of everybody agreeing to actually do something uh, about it so it's uh it's kind of a snapshot into how far you have to go to get something done Anyway, on that bright note, what do we have for Isn't That Terrible? Oh, well, continuing the theme of bright notes, uh, let's see. We have, well, let's just watch. Let's, let's go to uh, the Daily Mail article. So this is um, wife of powerful sewage tech wrestled out of South Dakota school board meeting, tells her husband, we got this in social media posts and says she supports both maskers and non-maskers. Um, on Monday night, cops were forced to remove Reed Bender from a Mitchell school board meeting in South Dakota. Let's just watch this. I really don't want to. I know you don't want to do it. Okay. I know you do not want to do it. Yeah. I know this guy doesn't want to do it, but unfortunately, you have to follow these fools' rules, right? If it's part of their policy that you have yeah. to. Yeah. Trying to force me out. This is what you are doing. At that point, you could. You are sowing discord within our communities at every level. It's disgusting. Do you harass? Look at him trying clients? not to smile. Look at him trying not to smile. When, when they're at your restaurant to put on masks, <laughs> sir. Do you oh, harass sir. them, sir? We're not. We're not going to. Do you? you? At this point, at this point, you could be facing additional charges of obstruction if you don't. If you don't. Of what? I, I get it. I get it. So then I get, get it. I get it. You can. You're going to have to drag me out. Don't do it, man. Don't do it. 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 Don
You will have to taste me in front of all these people. I really don't want to taste Don't taste it. I don't want to taste it. And I want these people to video it while their cops of minority descent have to do this to everybody. Constantly putting you people in these positions. He just wants to have a say in what's going on. Well, we pay. We pay school taxes. We just don't resist. Let's all get in the huddle, like we did on Friday night at the football game. How many people are on the football team? We put them on a pedestal, and we let them get into a group, and huddle, and chant, and we don't say a damn word, because sports is on a pedestal, and I get sports are important, but how is that more important than every other student and chorus and all the other activities that go on? Bam. No power puff? Power Bam. puff? What's that? There's public commentary time when you'll be able to. But you don't let people speak. You force them out. <laughs> Do you think that they chose Reed on purpose? Like, was there a, you know, how like Rosa P Parks, there was a lot of coordination. People oh, you're right. You mean this down. was like a, this was an intentional like yeah. movement thing? Yeah, a movement thing. And they're like, okay, we got to find, well, it could have gone either way, actually, because they, it would have been good optics to choose like a very kind of small person. That would have been good. They choose Reed, who is far and away the fittest person in that entire room. Right. He looks yeah. like a, a sweat, like a, he looks like he's wearing sweat, swim trunks also. He looks like a guy who works out, but also drinks eight beers a day. But has a really good metabolism. I don't know. Maybe not eight. Maybe maybe five. Yeah, five. Yeah. But what was she talking about? What, the, I mean, I, I hope that had something to do with football before before I, that moment. Well, I think what she was saying is that I guess they're football players that huddle. I hope they wear masks. But she seemed to be calling out a double standard. Um, and she was saying, you know, like football players, you know, who, who's on football? Who's, who saw them huddle? And then she's like, and I get sports are important, but why is that more important than chorus or power puff or powder puffs? I don't know what that is. Is that? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's probably a Dakota thing. That's but what we, I was thinking, but, yeah. But is that in the context of, some, of something or is she just saying? I, just well, so this is a school board meeting. So I think about she, football. No, I don't think so. But basically, I think she's just showing that there's not that there's a double standard, right? Because football players are allowed to huddle. It's uh, it's unclear. At first, I thought she was saying like giving a pep talk, like Let, guys, let's huddle, let's group together, let's take this thing on. Yeah, because I, th I thought I thought that was what happened is that she made an association in her head with let's huddle, and then she just decided to, to lash out against huddling. Yeah, well, I don't. Yeah, it's it's true. I don't know if that was the direction. Either she planned it. And she was already sarcastically calling out the huddle culture mm. or she was saying like she was using huddle culture to really call for a huddle. And then her mind went to this other place where she realized, wow, that's another opportunity to shame people for their, you know, biased, uneven application, cruel and unusual application and arbitrary application of um, social distancing or mask rules. Can we have them on the show? Yeah. By the way, the the guy who carved the wood dick uh, tweeted at us. No. When? Yes. Uh, last week. Anyway, so that's the isn't that terrible? Actually, can we do this really quickly? I think this is because you you gave the call back the third link I have because you gave the call back to the wooden penis man. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a comparable thing in terms of people being provoking angry neighbor responses. This is from the the Daily Mirror. 
Um, angry neighbor sends nasty letter claiming woman's garage has devalued the area. It's a bit onionish already, but go ahead. Yeah. And so let's actually let's wait until don't show the thing yet, Dan. I want to surprise Matt with the I want him to be surprised by the visual. Okay. So first let me just read what the what the letter said. It was a printed out sign that said you just devalued all the homes in this area with that hideous graffiti at the top of your house. It has made the entire neighborhood look like a low income ghetto. You couldn't have put it inside your house or on an interior wall versus force us all to have to live with that. You have compromised everyone's property value and resale opportunities by doing it with no consideration for anyone but your tasteless self. What a total lack of respect for your neighbors, anyone else's value of property or pride of ownership in the neighborhood. Wow. Um, yeah. And then it says, I feel sorry for the homeowners on your street. And thank God it's not on ours. But every visitor we have will now have to drive by that shit on the way to us like they're driving through the hood shame on you you have no class okay now if we could look at the image of what was painted that caused such anger i think you'll understand it matt when you see what this is painted on the garage door wait 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 because i gotta guess what the joke is here either either it's ridiculously not offensive and and small or it's it's something like way beyond uh, anything imaginable. Yeah. Which of those two do you think yeah, it is? Which, I think yeah. it's the former. Okay. <laughs> so for people, for people who are just listening, uh, it's a night sky. Would you say? It's the stars and moon. Yes. With like some nice hills on yeah, it. It's yeah. Like, it's like it's like a a, a nice, <laughs> nice completely guy. inoffensive. <laughs> it's almost like something you would find in a. It's a children's book illustration. Yeah, basically. it's the opposite of wooden penis. <laughs> it's a polar opposite. <laughs> I thought it would just be like graffiti, but small, like something right, really yeah. inconsequential. But this is actually nice. It's even funnier. I know all the and you know it's like what stereotypes about the hood and the ghetto is this invoking? <laughs> like you know those broken families with their night sky graffiti, the crescent moon, that gang symbol, the crescent moon. First of all, I love that the guy sat down and he basically wrote James Joyce's Ulysses. I know. You know, like I don't even I don't just feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for the 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 single celled organisms I that know. You know, reproduced ten billion years ago and eventually gave birth to you. You know what I mean? Like he went he went all the way back in history to denounce everyone ever connected with this person. Yeah, it's so <laughs> God, I love human beings. It's so weird. Shame on you. You have no class. <laughs> Wait, yeah, can we hear the beginning of that again? Did a, a color, <laughs> color printout. I love the so, center justification. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So it starts out with a bigger, so it's bigger font. It's all caps. And it's center justification. And the top says, you just devalued. That's And devalued and low-income ghetto are both in red. So it's, you just devalued all the homes in this area with that hideous graffiti at the front of your house. It has made the entire neighborhood look like a low-income ghetto. Low-income ghetto in red. In red. Then it's smaller font. And then at the very bottom in bigger font again, shame on you, you have no class. The weird thing is that person doesn't even live on that street. <laughs> Because he goes, I feel sorry for the homeowners on your street, and thank God it's not on ours, but every visitor we have will now have to drive by that shit on the way to us like they're driving through the hood. 
Shame on you, you have no class. Yeah. Somebody's got to put together a because uh, there must be thousands of letters like this that right. like, or or complaints like this that end up popping up in every alderman meeting in the country. Right. We should get somebody to to collect neighbor complaints like this and see what the craziest ones are we've had some good ones though i mean i think the this is like the opposite of the wooden penis story exactly right it's inverted wooden penis right all right so for um isn't that weird i just love the story uh dan if we could um actually call up the npr version of this story the story i found really interesting for a couple of reasons first of all things are so terrible right now with the coronavirus the demonstrations the forest fires everything that something like life discovered on other planets uh, is like barely a story for even five right. seconds. So this story popped up earlier this week. The headline in um, NPR was a possible sign of life right next door to Earth on Venus, which is fascinating until you actually read what it says. Uh-oh. So here, here's the N- NPR story. Scientists say they've detected a gas in the clouds of Venus that on Earth is produced by microbial life. The researchers have racked their brains trying to understand why this toxic gas, phosphine, is there in such quantities, but they can't think of any geologic or chemical explanation. And then essentially what they say is this is a gas that's often produced in industrial processes, um, and it's very disgusting and smells terrible, and it, it is also produced in some anaerobic biologic processes. So possibly, maybe... It's an, an explanation for this gas existing on Venus is that there's some kind of microorganism that's producing it. But it's far less conclusive than they found like a footprint. You know? right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a very, very, it's just pure conjecture. But it was a story all around the world. And uh, what I also found interesting about this is the way the different news agencies tried to sell it. Uh, because some of them really went hard for the clicks. Right. And some of them didn't. So I think NPR was kind of in between a possible sign of life right next door on Venus. The New York Times, very timesy headline, life on Venus, astronomers see a signal in its cloud. Then there was another one, uh, National Geographic, possible sign of life on Venus stirs up heated debate, technology review, phosphine spotted in Venus clouds could be sign of biological life. But I just... I think this is a great example of how the Brits know how to do stories like this. So, if Dan, if we could see Sky News. Okay, so this is how you do it, uh, click hunters. Signs of alien life detected on Venus. Yeah, that's good. absolutely that's like so no good. reservation. And the Brits are Just... so understated, except for their headlines and the way they yell at each other in the House of Parliament. That's right. That's true. Are the, is there any other House of Commons? Yeah, because uh, they're, they're like the anti-Macenros yeah. and every other, everything else. But uh, when it comes to the tabloid press, they just know how to do this stuff, right? Just don't even don't even go halvesies. Just go directly to uh, we found aliens on Venus, and that was the story that I clicked on first because of that. Right. It's right? like the met. It's perf- It's like yay and nay, loud yays and loud nays, and loud headlines. Right, exactly. So anyway, isn't that weird? I just thought that as a lesson to y- any young aspiring press people who might be in, in the audience, if you're going to write a headline, go big or go home, just say whatever. You, yeah, exactly. Don't 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 go hands. You just say whatever you think the most extreme interpretation of the story could possibly be. And okay. it smells. That's what we know. And it's yes. not somewhere we can go when the world blows up and in, into flames. Right? No, right. no. Uh, and and basically, when you actually get down to the story, it just turns out to be a bunch of scientists can't explain something. Right. 
but it was really interesting when it says signs of life detected on Venus. I, I was super interested in that yeah. for a second. What else do we have? We have a stone moment. So we haven't had a stone moment for a while. No, I mean, so with, the, with Biden and Trump, it's almost always a stone moment. Never a dull moment, always a stone moment. But this one stood out even for Trump. Incidentally, if they if they actually end up doing a Joe Rogan uh, thing with Debate. Biden and Trump, I mean, they have to get baked for that. Yeah, they will, yeah. Or shrooms or something like oh that. Oh, my God, yeah. Anyway, what do we got? you like to see specifically done on the issue of forest management? And is it possible that it's also forest management and climate change? It's both things well, at the I think same something's time. possible. I think a lot of things are possible. But with regard to the uh, forest, when trees fall down after a short period of time, about 18 months, they become very dry. They become really like a matchstick. And they get up, you know, there's no more water pouring through. And they become very, very, uh, they just explode. They can explode. Also, leaves, when you have years of leaves, dried leaves on the ground, it just sets it up. It's really a fuel for a fire. So they have to do something about it. They also have to do cuts. I mean, people don't like to do cuts, but they have to do cuts in between. So if you do have a fire and it gets away, you'll have a 50-yard cut in between. So it won't be able to catch to the other side. They don't do that. Uh, if you go to other countries, you go to Austria, you go to Finland, you go to uh, many different countries, and they don't have fire. I was talking to a head of a major country, and he said, we're a forest nation. We consider ourselves a forest nation. This was in Europe. I said, that's a beautiful term. He said, we have trees that are far more explosive he meant explosive in terms of fire, but we have trees that are far more explosive than they have in California, and we don't have any problem because we manage our forests. So we have to do that in California too. So I'll go do this, and we'll see you in a little while. Thank right. you. I'd be. Okay. And then this is him at the, um, I guess the same day. You know, he's setting up going to this conference or to some kind of meeting with California officials. Here's a clip of what happened there. If we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay. It'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think science knows actually. Tom? This story drives me crazy because it actually is true that you do need to do some of the things that he was talking about. And, you know, when you don't clear out the trees, it does create a, a problem. But then he he compounds it by denying global warming in this. Why does he do these things? Like, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me sometimes why he he steps beyond where the winnable yeah, right, political right. That's a good, thing right. is with him constantly. And, and he, it, it's funny because his adversaries do exactly the same thing with him. They constantly convert victory into defeat. Yeah, but he they does over, he, yeah. he does the same thing. He, he, he will say something that actually you know will makes a little bit of sense and then he'll com he'll just completely <laughs> uh, pull it back 10 minutes later but i love that video my, my favorite part i, I want to ask what your favorite part is my favorite part is when he starts listing other countries and it only and runs out of them after austria, austria and finland. finland yeah those are the only two countries you can think of and then um i thought that, matt do you want to go over this thing because we do have some home uh, housekeeping to do sure so what happened here is that, you know, our guest is Glenn Greenwald and um, I happened to be scrolling Twitter and you can imagine how upset I was when I saw that Matt Taibbi, my co-host, uh, tweeted, uh, the tuning out crew nails the high comedy of the Lincoln <laughs> project using Trump to hoover money 
from the MSNBC demographic. And that was Matt quote tweeting Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald had had seen that segment as well. Glenn tweeted the full tuning out segment on the shameless grifters at Project Lincoln as they interviewed the supremely grotesque Rick Wilson, who raised 65000 on a GoFundMe for a film not delivered. It's really one of the funniest things you'll ever see. Hashtag resist. So I saw that and I remembered that I myself. Matt, so embarrassing. Why do we have to do this? Oh, Go come ahead. on. Do you really? Yeah. I mean, if I thought it was really embarrassing. I remember that a couple of weeks ago I had seen that video, which is absolutely amazing, by the way really great and it's so funny to watch rick wilson he's so uncomfortable as they go after him and it's really like colbert at his best like he's making fun of of how much they love bush and how trump's a bad racist but bush was a good racist anyway so i was heartbroken and i i had to call out my co-host because i believe in in uh, restorative justice so i tweeted i sent that to you a few weeks ago matt and then I did listen to women. And then I said, disavow him or you're complicit, Glenn. And Glenn, uh, I, for, we sh- I should have asked him about this. But um, then what happened was... Uh, did he denounce me? I don't even remember. He did not, sadly, denounce you. But huh. uh, what happened was that you did. Um, you, you started to do the work to, to hold the, the space. And you responded, harsh, I totally didn't see it. Deep shame is mine. Because I had texted Matt that link earlier. And then I said, are you requesting permission to repair the sexism you perpetuated against me? Um, and then what was your response? I said, uh, we, uh, I want, yes, right. but um, I mean, we need to right. reach out to somebody who is skilled in cross-gender yes. dynamics, right. <laughs> which so, is really funny because people actually saw this exchange and didn't realize that it was a Robin D'Angelo joke. And right. For quite a long time afterwards, they were... They were giving me a hard time for spouting wokeisms, which was they thought that what's funny. up with people not getting uh, the sarcasm thing is tough for people. On it Twitter. is. Yeah. It, but it, don't yeah. they know you, this is kind of your lane is like not being into this discourse anyway. But Matt, I want to give you the chance. Is there any have you were you able to find across? I can't remember what it, what it is I'm supposed to say. I think it is it Katie. Will you will you offer me the opportunity to repair my sexism today? The sexism I perpetuated. <laughs> the sexism I perpetuated toward you. Yes. Today. Yes. Yes. Great. What do we do from here? I forget what the next step is. Honestly, if you don't know, I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> it's not on me. I'll go I'm back not and do, Yeah, you're going to have to talk to an expert. Is there like an equivalent to Hail Marys that I can that well, I can say? That's a good say? question. Hail Katie's. Like read 10 Andrew Dworkins or something like that. Oh yeah, or, that's good. Yeah. I, like I actually, I, this is, people are not going to believe oh, this. My God, I love reading Andrea Dworkin. Like, like, sarca- ironically, or you, you no, actually like, I, yeah, me too. As I think as a, as a writer through her anger is, is so intense that it's actually, it's interesting and it makes for good reading. I mean, I feel terrible when I read it, but okay. So we, so have we repaired our, my sexism? Probably not. We've Probably taken not. A step. We need, yeah, yeah. You're going to have to, but that's the first step. You can strive to put, to check your male privilege, but it's always going to be there. Right. Okay. Um, All right. Well, we've taken a step towards understanding that. You had an interesting thing you pointed out about the, the, this narrative that's coming up about, I thought this was an interesting yeah. thing because this is probably going to come up again. Yeah. The media is so good at blaming Bernie for everything. Let's just look at this, this video. And, uh, you know, the, it, what is interesting is that I just want to put this in an interesting context. So Jeet here... Um, who's at The Nation, tweeted out, on September 3rd, The Atlantic broke the story of Trump referring to dead soldiers as losers. At that point, Biden had a 7.3 advantage. After the story and further controversies, Biden has a 
zero percent advantage. So that's an example, I think, of the media really not getting how to deal with Trump um, or his his in his ability to like turn everything into a victory. We've seen that repeatedly over the last four years, where at the start of a story, you'll see you might see a tiny dip in his favorability rating, but then it, it shoots back up. I mean, that happened with impeachment last year. By the end of the by, by the end of that proceeding, his his favorability rating had gone way up. His approval rating had gone way up. Uh, the only one where it went down uh, and stayed down was after Charlottesville, huh. uh, and that was where he saw a pronounced dip. Uh, and, it, and it really stayed for a while. But usually with more reporting, what ends up happening is that his he, he works the story back into a place that's in his favor. Right. And this one surprised me. I kind of thought the army stuff would maybe stick. Um, of course, there's so many variables. Who, who knows? But it didn't cause as much of a problem as I thought it would. So then on the other hand, though, so they, they're terrible on Trump and then they're terrible on Bernie in a very different way. Steph, uh, if I was Joe Biden and I wanted to win the state of Florida, I would not be taking Bernie Sanders advice. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the reason uh, why the socialist label has stuck for some voters uh, on Joe Biden. Uh, Bernie Sanders is the reason why a lot of South Florida Hispanics in particular uh, are afraid that the Democratic Party has moved too far to the left, why they're susceptible uh, to this messaging from the Trump campaign that they should fear the Democratic Party. That's why Joe Biden has to reintroduce himself and tell these voters, I am a deal maker. I spent decades in the Senate trying to bring Republicans and Democrats together. I was the guy Barack Obama would send to negotiate with Mitch McConnell. I want to bring this country together. I am not a radical and nothing in my record indicates that. That's the message that a lot of these Latino voters, people who understandably uh, are concerned uh, with uh, all this talk about socialism because they left their countries fleeing those ideas and fleeing those kinds of revolutions. So uh, they need to hear uh, from Joe Biden. They need to know who he is. And when it comes to South Florida Hispanics, at least, if I was Joe Biden, I would not be taking Senator Sanders' advice. Okay, first of all, this guy, you've never seen him, right? Have you ever seen him? No. No. Uh, someone named Carlos Curbelo, who is a Cuban-American Republican, obviously. Um, he was a two-term uh, congressman uh, until he got defeated by a Democrat who is not Cuban-American, which is saying a lot. He's in the Miami area, and he got defeated by a non-Cuban-American, non-Republican. Right. I'm just so tired of people using their, like, the Cuban-American demographic as interchangeable with Latino. It is so annoying. And Joe Scarborough right. did a similar thing the other day where he was talking about how badly Bernie did with Latinos. And it's like, no, he actually did really well with Latinos. Yeah, so it, it wasn't it wasn't Bernie that made a big deal of the Cuban issue last year. It was all the other people in the Democratic Party and, yeah. and MSNBC and all these pundits and columnists who who were triangulating against him throughout the entirety of last year. Of course, naturally, I think they were trying to to submarine Bernie's campaign. Yes, hammer they're and sickle gonna, him, as Chuck Todd said. Right. So so now they're going to turn around and say that all of that negative propaganda is his fault when they end up losing Dade County right. in the election, which looks like it's going to happen. Incidentally, that's a very interesting media story that there have been dueling 
Florida issues, the sort of pro-democratic press is talking about how or Orlando is going to go for the Democrats this year. And the right wing press is talking about how Miami is going right. to go for the Republicans this right. year. But if, you know, if that happens, if they're going to if they're going to turn around and blame Sanders, you know, if and when they have a problem in Florida coming up in November, in November, that's going to be really rich because they were the ones who made a huge deal of this last year. Yeah. And remember when when Chris Matthews was like, I'm afraid I have a, a, a I have an issue. I have an attitude with Castro. I'm afraid there are going to be executions in Central Park. Right. Yeah, exactly. So so after that network has somebody talking about how the you know Bernie Sanders acolytes are going to drag people out into Central Park and execute anchor people in the middle of Central Park. Then they turn around and say that uh, that it's Bernie's fault that they're going to lose votes right. in Dade County. So yeah. it's, it's pretty rich. It's, a, it's such a great classic example of the media making a story and then pretending that they're just commenting, that they're just doing analysis of the story as opposed to creating the story. Yeah. And the other thing we should probably watch is there's a lot of seeding going on right now where uh, political consultants in both the Republican and Democratic orbits are already whispering to reporters about the reasons that they're going to lose the election in November. Uh, we're seeing this going on in both places. This this is uh, one example. There are other people who are already blaming the Democratic response to the protests. There are people on the right wing side who are talking about the lack of outreach on the ground. Right. And I think what, the what happens is Commons already talking about Russians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The Russian thing is already uh, they're, they're doing that story. And this is just so people understand is there's a lot of people whose jobs are tied to these issues and what they do. You know, they work in think tanks or congressional committees or whatever it is, and they just work the refs uh, a lot. They talk to the reporters before things happen to make right. sure that they have things in their mind so that when the news turns bad, they know what to say. Um, so that's already already happening uh, in advance asses, right? in November. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's. Um, I guess we should talk to our guests. Yeah, let's talk. This is really an introduction. We got Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. We got lots of interesting media stuff going on this week. So, um, and I'm going to predict. Uh, I'm going to predict because I'm so good at media analysis that he's going to have some connectivity issues, perhaps. Anyway, uh, without further ado, um, let's talk to Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. We are joined now by uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, award-winning journalist from The Intercept, Global Gadfly. What's the word they use with you most often, Glenn? Gadfly? Muckraker, asshole, <laughs> depending on like what the venue is. Fat fascist is my personal favorite. Fat fascist, white supremacist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, well, thanks for coming on. Lots to talk about uh, with you. So I guess we should start with there was a piece in the New York Times uh, this week about The Intercept. And, and my first question is just about what is it? I, I Honestly, I read it and I didn't really understand what was new in it, what the point of it was. Can you, can you help me with that? Well, so, you know, the background is obviously in 2017 when The Intercept published what it presented as, and a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people took as some sort of important bombshell and then immediately after the Trump administration arrested the person they said was the source of the document in which the story was based, it became a big media story because the Trump Justice Department, who the media never trust except decided to do so in this case mindlessly, purposely depicted everything as being the Intercept's fault because the intelligence community hates the Intercept because we intercept their documents and publish them routinely, hence the name of the 
website. And so it became a media scandal. And the problem for us was we couldn't really respond to what was being said about us or provide a lot of details about what happened because our source was arrested and was being prosecuted. And our first concern couldn't be protecting ourselves. It had to be making sure we said nothing as so as to not enable the government or help the government prosecute the person they accused of being our source. We, of course, didn't know who the source was because the document on which the story was based was dropped into the mail anonymously and sent to us and who sent it. But the government was pretty certain that they had caught this person and they proceeded to blame the intercept and the mistakes the government said that we made. And in reality, because of how pervasive the surveillance state is, it's very difficult to leak if you're inside an agency like the NSA, especially post-Snowden without getting caught. But they, we did, it's true, the intercept did make mistakes, so they blamed us. So for three years, the narrative was, she's in prison because the intercept made mistakes. And in particular, um, the claim was that I personally um, was responsible for her being in prison, either because I was an amateur who made mistakes or I purposely turned her over to the government because I either am a supporter of Donald Trump and was angry that she tried to leak a document that would be adversarial to the Trump administration or that I work with Vladimir Putin. And I don't know when exactly it was, but somebody who was a co-founder of The Intercept, Laura Poitras, who left in 2015. So we're talking five years ago. She hasn't been with The Intercept. But nonetheless, harbors an extreme personal vendetta, not toward me, um, but toward Betsy Reed, who's the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, as well as the president of First Look Media, Michael Bloom, leaked to Ben Smith, um, a whole series of documents, along with a couple other people who did the leaking with her, that was designed to put the blame on Betsy Reed as the editor-in-chief and their specific reporters who actually worked on the story. Matthew Cole and Richard Esposito, right? Yeah, and, and, and there were two other reporters on the byline, Sam Biddle and Ryan Grimm, though they played a very ancillary role in doing the reporting. The main reporting was done by Matt Cole and Rich Esposito, who also was um, a longtime investigative journalist and an editor at NBC News. So these were not, you know, uh, kind of first-year bloggers. These are people who had done very high-level national right, or- security reporting for a long time for NBC. Um, and obviously, The Intercept staff is filled with editors and journalists like Jim Risen from The New York Times and others who had extensive experience in national security reporting. And there was a team in New York who did that. So the fact that Laura leaked these documents with the intention of destroying Betsy and, and, and Michael Bloom, who are her personal enemies, enabled Ben Smith, the media columnist for the New York Times, who used to be a tabloid journalist for the, for the New York Daily News and then the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed. Also, the New York Times has had their sources arrested, too, within the past 10 years. That was when Jim Risen, my now colleague, the I was going to say, it, wasn't um, that the, it was the Risen thing, right? Yeah, it was, he was almost imprisoned by the Obama administration because they, they found out who his source was and they prosecuted his source. The government, first under Obama administration, now under Trump administration, is on a crusade to root out sources and prosecute them. So lots of media outlets, including Ben Smith when he was at BuzzFeed and the New York Times that published a story about us, have had their own sources arrested. They just forgot to mention that they too have had that happen to them in the attempt to blame us. So it was a very kind of scattershot, article because Laura has a lot of enemies. She has enemies that are the head of First Look. So there was a little bit about First Look. She has enemies at the inner, particularly Betsy Reed. She's angry about 
the layoffs that were done. She's angry about how she was treated and her film. So it was a very, you know, Ben was sort of doing service to his source, which was Laura. She turned over personal emails between myself and her. And that's the reason why it wasn't a very coherent or cogent story, in part because it was just all old news. Everyone knew what the mistakes were that The Intercept made three years ago because we acknowledged those mistakes and it was reported widely. So there was nothing new, but he had all these documents that were just kind of all over the place because Laura had so many people she was trying to get back at that it just ended up being this kind of scattershot story that didn't really tell a cohesive story about much of anything, I don't think. Is it because of the Assange? I mean, is that kind of the tie-in, that it's another story related to... I don't know, sources and getting people into trouble or? Well, look, I mean, The Intercept did make mistakes in its handling of this document. The, I mean, it was a very difficult position The Intercept was put in because this document that a lot of people, again, not me, but a lot of people believed was important arrived in the post office box of the intercept with no indication of who it came from and therefore no way to authenticate it. Usually if you're a national security journalist and someone leaks documents to you, the person who can authenticate it is your source. And of course you go about authenticating it further from there. But when you have no source, you don't know who the person is who sent it to you as was the case here. And then you suddenly have this document in your hands that you feel an obligation to publish it's very difficult. How do you go about authenticating it? So the only way to do that is you find someone in the government that you trust and you show them the document. But in the course of doing that, they made mistakes. Namely, they provided the physical document itself, which had a crease in it that enabled the government to know that it was printed out and folded as opposed to delivered in some other way. So it gave them clues that would have helped them find the source had they not already known who the source was, which is what enabled them to then craft this narrative, the Trump Justice Department, to purposely heap all the blame on The Intercept. Um, so it wasn't like The Intercept was free of mistakes. Um, there were mistakes made, and they acknowledged those mistakes. Right. The parent company paid for the sources, Reality Winner's legal defense. Um, so it's not like it's a non-story. Um, I just don't know what this New York Times article added other than to try and just kind of take shots at people incoherently right glenn if we could just go back just for a second i i remember when this story first came out um i had a similar thought and and rereading it this time with the the new ben smith story there the the dilemma that you talk about about how you confirm a story like this uh when you get something anonymous from a source i feel like i don't want to blame reality winner at all for what happened in this situation I feel like it's almost maybe people should know that it's actually probably more dangerous to send something anonymously than to reach out to a news organization because really your only shot of not being detected uh, in a situation like that when you've done something, um, you've taken such an extreme step is to trust probably the news organization because they're, otherwise they're going to try to confirm the story somehow and you're probably going it's probably going to lead to you getting caught. Right. Well, also, I should you know note that in recent years, media outlets have placed a premium on source protection because right. of the knowledge of how extensive the surveillance state is. And every responsible news organization, including our own, has now a page that essentially says, here's what you should do if you want to leak classified information to us. Here are the steps you ought to take 
to minimize the chances that you're actually going to get caught. And we emphasize, like all media outlets should, that there's no such thing as zero risk. If you're leaking classified information to a media outlet, there's a chance, no matter how careful you are, that you're going to get caught. But there are definitely steps that you can take to minimize the risk. And, you know, without blaming her, because I think she did something that was an act of conscience that we want people inside the government doing if we're journalists, which is leaking information in the public interest. The simple fact of the matter is she didn't follow those protocols and for that reason made it very easy for the government to find her, which isn't a way of mitigating or justifying the mistakes The Intercept made. The Intercept made mistakes and those mistakes aren't more justified or less, you know, inexcusable because of the fact that she would have gotten caught anyway. But it just is simply the case that anyone who says that she's in prison because The Intercept made mistakes is lying. Um, and The Washington Post and every media outlet basically that looked at this back in 2017 all said the same thing, which is that the government had way more than enough information because of the, the, the breadcrumbs that she left to easily find her no matter what The Intercept did. I just thought this was an interesting uh, tweet from uh, Edward Snowden, which you retweeted, Glenn, which kind of summarized what you said, which is much discussion of former Intercept reporters failing misses, uh, failings, misses. One, no reporter could have prevented winner's discovery as a news source. Two, that doesn't require winner to be naive or clumsy. It is heroism to prioritize the public's right to know over one's own safety. And he's saying that she's not naive or clumsy. That's the, he put that in quotes. Right, because yeah. the New York right, Times because said what, what, one because and we, Washington Post said the other, yeah. Exactly. What, what he was, what he, exactly. So when the Washington Post in 2017 essentially looked at this and said she didn't get caught because of anything The Intercept did, she got caught because of what she did, they called her actions clumsy. And then the New York Times, I think, called them naive, that she was naive, and essentially saying she didn't do what you ought to do if you're being a careful journalist. And the point that Snowden was making, which he obviously knows from personal experience, is that you can easily get caught without being clumsy or naive. The fact is the government is watching everybody, but right. especially people who work inside of it. Um, and that it's not about blaming her. It's about preventing journalists from creating a false narrative because they don't give a shit about reality winner. They care about maligning the intercept and me of lying and saying that she's in jail because of what the intercept did. That's just not factually true. And media outlets that were responsible and looked at this said that, and that was Snowden's point. In her position, I wouldn't have known not to not to do what she did. I don't think I, I think most people wouldn't have known. But with the process within a you know a good news organization is that they they can't really do anything with it until they have some kind of ind indication that, that it's true. And normally that comes from the person. Right. So if you're working with somebody and you know who that person is, there are lots of different ways that you can confirm at least that they work at the place or, or whatever. But if it's anonymous, then you you end up going to the you know, to the agency to try to confirm it, which is, is what started this whole ball rolling, which is I, I just want exactly. to stress I'm not blaming her. But yeah, no, so. it, it, exactly. And there's a there's another aspect to that, which is everybody who wants to malign the intercept is talking about the duties we owe to our source. But when a document arrives in the mail anonymously, you don't actually have a source yet. You don't have a relationship with the source. You don't know who your source is, which 
to your point, makes it very difficult to go and protect that person because you don't even know who they are. And obviously, there's a possibility, a very good possibility that you obviously have to investigate seriously that there is no source, that this document is fabricated, that it's been sent to you with the intention to induce you to publish it on purpose um, in order to destroy your credibility. There's an Army document from 2008 that was worried about the role that WikiLeaks is playing. And it talked about, it was strategizing about how to destroy the credibility of WikiLeaks. And one of the tactics it discussed was, well, we could just fabricate documents and leak it to them so that they publish it and that will forever destroy their credibility. So I think you're absolutely right, Matt. It's a very good point. If you have a source who contacts you personally, right away you have this relationship. You have this person that you know you're now working with who can walk you through it, who can help you get the information that you need in a careful way and that you have the ability to protect. When you just kind of drop it in the mail and the, the news organization has no idea who you are or how to protect you, it actually ironically or paradoxically can be more dangerous for the source than if you establish a relationship using secure communication technologies um, which is typically how a source would contact a journalist if they want to leak classified information. Can you just go over what exactly um, what Reality Winners document showed? I personally don't think it showed anything, um, which is why I never was that excited by it. Um, the document was written by somebody in the NSA. We have no idea who the person was in the NSA who wrote this document because it was anonymous. It was un it was unsigned. It was there was no name on it, which means we don't know if they were just some low level analyst. We don't know if they were a senior official. We don't know if they had access to any information that they would that would have enabled them to form a competent assessment of what they were purporting to uh to to describe so that was one of the things that bothered me about the document was it could have been anyone in the NSA um and there was no way to assess their ability to credibly assess what it was that they were claiming the other problem i had with the document was so the document speculated or suggested that the russians had attempted to preliminarily examine the possibility of hacking into the voting rolls of, of states, which obviously is a big deal, right? If the Russians did that or tried to do that, that's something that you would, you know, would, would want to tell the public. And that's why I was in favor all along of publishing the document, even though I didn't think it was as significant as other people thought it was. The problem for me was that that assertion was contained in this memo written by an unknown person with the NSA, but there was no underlying evidence to corroborate it. There was like, what was the evidence that was seen that would let, lead them to believe that this penetration occurred and more importantly, that the Russians were behind it. I, for me, if I had been asked to do the story, which I wasn't, or if I were to do the story, which I didn't, I would want to get that evidence and go to the technologist that we have employed at the intercept and hacking specialists that we consult with regularly and ask them to examine the material to find out whether or not those conclusions in the memo are supported by the underlying evidence. So for me, what was missing crucially was number one, any idea of who actually said this and whether they had competence to do, to say it. And number two, whether it was true, there's no way to know if it was true because we didn't have the underlying evidence. It was unaccompanied by evidence. But the claim, the core claim of the memo 
was that the Russians had tried to probe the possibility of hacking into various states databases for whatever motive which is interesting but it's an assessment right it's it, it wasn't it, it didn't tell you what led them to that assessment it was just basically that they had assessed that it was a hot take precisely you know just and, and it was very similar to what was happening throughout all of Russiagate, which was the intelligence community was leaking assertions conclusions the russians did this um putin was behind it you know trump did this with the Russians, all without evidence, just assertions, evidence-free claims. That was the problem that a lot of journalists who were skeptical of Russiagate narratives, including myself and Matt, had all along with these assertions was they were emanating anonymously from the intelligence community, unaccompanied by evidence. To me, what was this document? Exactly that. An anonymous claim emanating from the intelligence community, unaccompanied by evidence, which is why, for me, to this very day, and back then, I never thought this was such a significant document. Um, again, I was in favor of publishing it because I think the public had the right to know it if it could be authenticated, but I didn't think it was a big deal, and I still don't. That's what you claim, but what we know really happened, Glenn, is that you were mad that this disrupted your narrative, so you decided to get a reality winner locked up. That's right, so can I? Yeah. So can we talk about the 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 orgy of disinformation yeah, lies yeah. that were spread for yeah. forty eight hours on Twitter in the wake of the story? Because I, it's really it's something that I find that genuinely stunning. I like so I've been on Twitter since I believe two thousand and eight, so twelve glorious years of my life I've been <laughs> on Twitter, and during that time I've been involved in a few online controversies here and there. So it's not like I'm a stranger to online controversies or to seeing disinformation spread by journalists using social media platforms. I have a pretty high bar when it comes to those things for being shocked. But what happened in the wake of that New York Times article shocked me, just how blatantly so many journalists, verified journalists, not you know random Russiagate crazies, um, were just lying lying about what happened, about what the article said and about, about what happened. So for three years, as I mentioned, I had been hearing that it was my mistakes that led to Reality Winner being in jail because I'm an amateur who doesn't know basic OPSEC. And of course, the New York Times finally made clear that in fact, I had no role to play whatsoever in that story. And here were the people who did. So instead of those journalists saying, oh, you know what? We've been blaming him for three years when in reality, he had no role in this story here are the people who did. Let's assess what they did and how culpable they are. They instead completely switched the narrative to it's still his fault because he wasn't involved. Right. And the reason is, is because Reality Winner sent these documents to Glenn Greenwald, but because it contradicted his narrative or his ideology, he passed on the story and gave it to a bunch of amateurs and that's the reason now she's imprisoned with covid. And I guess the implicit the, the implicit assumption there is that I am such a uniquely skilled journalist that only I could possibly have done this story in a way that could have protected her, but everyone else at the intercept including all the highly skilled and experienced journalists couldn't, which I guess is flattering though they don't really intentionally mean that right but the two lies that are embedded in that story like blatant lies are number one that she sent the documents to me she dropped them in the mail to the post office box of the intercept without mentioning my name with zero indication 
that she even knew who I was, let alone wanted me to work on the story. When sources come to a journalist, they come directly to the journalist. My email is public. I get right. contacts all the time from journalists saying, I want to work with you on a story. Or we have a tip line and people send in tips saying, I want this reporter or this reporter to work. She had no, no one, she had no, there was no indication from her that she cared who at The Intercept worked on it, let alone that she wanted me to work on it or thought that I would. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this idea that I passed on the story is a total lie. The editor-in-chief of The Intercept, which people have a hard time believing for reasons I think is really interesting, is not me, but Betsy Reed. And she's in New York, which is where the document came. And when the document came, she assigned this document to a team of highly experienced reporters with lots of experience in the national security world and gave them editors who are also highly experienced. No one offered me this story. I didn't even know about this document. I didn't even know it existed until weeks after they had been working on it. Um, by which time she was already arrested, by the way. She was already arrested. I was in Brazil. I was working on my own stories and nobody thought that I would want to be involved in this story. No one, I don't work in the New York office. So it was just a natural thing to give it. So I didn't pass on anything. I didn't even find out about the story until weeks after. And it was true. My opinion of the memo was what I described earlier, which is I never thought this was such a big deal. But that had no bearing on anything that happened. It wasn't like anyone asked me to work on the story. And how can you possibly say, even if it were true that I passed on the story, how would that passing on the story be a causal factor in her being arrested? Again, unless you think that there's no journalist in the world skillful enough to protect her except for me, which I guarantee you is not what these people are trying to imply. So... It was just amazing to watch journalists say, look at Glenn Greenwald, he passed on the story, reality winner wanted him to work on it, but he wasn't interested. All complete and utter lies that the story itself didn't even say. And what was even more amazing to me was there was 3,000 words about what happened in the reality winner story, and they were completely uninterested in that. Go to Twitter and search for Betsy Reed or Matt Cole or Rich Esposito, the people who actually worked on the story. You'll find nobody talking about them. All they cared about, they, they don't care about reality winner. They just used her as a toy to exploit her to malign and attack me, even though I had no involvement in the story and was never asked to. So it was really a stunning disinformation campaign where people in the media who have longstanding animosity towards me out of professional jealousy or ideological resentment because I was a heretic on the Russiagate story or for whatever other reasons decided to just craft a completely fictitious set of events and just endorse it over and over and over repetitiously, hoping that it would just in the public mind become true. And it got spread enough virally that I'm sure they convinced hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, of a complete and utter lie, namely that she tried to get me to work on this story and that I passed on it because I was uninterested and that was the reason she ended up in prison. It was amazing to watch how easily and readily journalists lie. Like, everybody knows the media... Um, you know, is unreliable and spreads disinformation. But when you're the person that they're talking about and therefore have firsthand information about what really happened, I noticed this when I worked on the Snowden story. I noticed it last year when I did my Brazil exposés. When you're at the center of something the media is discussing, you really see how, in a vivid, visceral way, how constantly and authoritatively and casually they lie and just deceive people to believe things that, didn't actually happen. And that's yeah. what I witnessed for 48 hours after that New York Times story. Yeah. So there, there was an additional thing I saw people saying, which was that 
Yes, uh, he didn't have anything uh, directly to do with it, but she had been listening to a podcast or she asked for a transcript of a podcast, which must have been Glenn and Jeremy talking about Russiagate. And she was so spurred to correct the record on Russiagate that she sent this document to the Intercept. But that that wasn't the case either, right? It turned out to be the Naomi Klein thing that she was listening to. Exactly. That's another complete lie. So this lie got this lie originated in New York magazine by Carrie Halley and John Chait, um, where they said, I guess that ABC News was the first to report that Reality Winner had requested the transcript of a podcast that she had listened to, the podcast that Jeremy Scahill has hosted for several years called, called Intercepted. And New York Magazine claimed that the transcript she requested was one in which Jeremy and I, that he had me on as a guest, talked about Russiagate and expressed skepticism over it. Jeremy went back and looked at the emails of people requesting transcripts of the podcast and did find one from her, only one, and she requested a transcript of only one podcast, and it was not a podcast on which I appeared. It was a podcast where the primary guest was Naomi Klein talking with Jeremy, not about Russiagate, but about climate issues. And also Murtaza Hussein was on talking about issues regarding Iran. So the transcript of the podcast she requested had nothing to do with Russiagate or me. This is just another media narrative that got fabricated or concocted and now just spread and probably will just be a zombie lie that people will believe forever that reality winner sent this document to the intercept because she had listened to a podcast where Jeremy and I expressed skepticism about Russiagate and wanted to correct it, even though there's zero evidence that she ever listened to that podcast at all. The only evidence is that she requested a pod, a transcript of a podcast that had nothing to do with Russiagate and on which I did not appear. It's, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, there's so much, the you know the first time that in my life that I was really at the center of a major media story was the Snowden reporting. And I used to have this experience all the time. There's nothing like it to make you really understand how the media works where I would be present for events or conversations or, you know, things that people did. And then I would read in a major news outlet in a very authoritative tone describing something that I knew firsthand was completely false. Or you'd hear like on ABC News or Meet the Press, somebody making an assertion about something from the intelligence community that I knew firsthand was false. And they don't do it in a speculative tone, but in a definitive authoritative tone. And it happens over and over. And you're listening to the most trusted influential media outlets saying things that you know personally didn't happen, are totally false over and over and over again. And that was, that really, you know, was kind of formative for me. I mean, we, again, like most people who are media critics understand rationally that the media often disseminates information that's false, but there's nothing like being at the center of a story to make you realize just what a disinformation machine it is. The same thing happened last year when I was at the center of the reporting in Brazil and also the reality winner story. It's just, it's, it's, it's amazing to watch when you have that perspective of knowing for a fact what actually happened. And even when you know it rationally, even if you're in the media, the, the, the way things are delivered 
still works on your brain on some level. That's a, a, a part of the insight I think you get in, in these situations is, is how effective propaganda can be. Even when you're staring in the face and you know it's untrue, uh, you can see how it works. Yeah, I mean, w- w- one of the, th- the things that I found interesting was, you know, there was a paragraph purposely inserted early on in that New York Times story that involved me. Like, you know, there were a couple of people saying, why was I even mentioned in this story at all? If it was a story about the intercepts reporting about reality winner, why was I even included? I wasn't involved in the reporting of the reality winner story. Like the only possible legitimate inclusion of my name would be that obviously in the fallout, I participated in the discussion about what we should do and how we should handle it. Jeremy and I were upset about the lack of transparency, about the lack of accountability. That's all legitimate to report. But of course, they included me early on because they know that that's going to stimulate attention um, in the story. And the paragraph that Ben wrote was was admittedly vague when it said that I wasn't interested in the story. Ben asked me, what did you think of the story? And I said, I never was really interested. And the way he wrote it left a little bit of ambiguity about whether my lack of interest meant that I had passed on the story. It didn't say that, but I, I, I'm willing to like give people the generosity of believing that maybe in good faith they just misread it and thought that's what it was saying when in fact it didn't say that and that's not what happened. That's why I got up that morning and instantly corrected it. And I said, look, I never passed on the story because it was never offered to me. I didn't even know about the story. It was Betsy Reed who assigned it to other people. Assuming kind of naively or gullibly, or maybe I didn't assume, that that would end it, that the people saying that would stop saying it, that they would acknowledge, okay, I was wrong. There were a few honest journalists like Kim Zetter um, and Dustin Volz from the, the Wall Street Journal who said it. And then when they saw my correction, either deleted the tweet and apologized or said, oh, okay, I, now I understand. But there was most of them just kept spreading it and retweeting it and claiming it over and over and over, even knowing it was false. Why? Because there's no consequence for spreading disinformation they know that enough people are on you know social media without the capacity or the ability or the time or the incentive to figure out if what they're saying is true so they can just convince enough people that what they're saying is true even though it isn't to be shielded from accountability so the incentive is high for them to keep saying it they get more retweets they get more followers they feel like They've expelled some sort of vindictive, vengeful agenda, Um, you know, and that's why I'm so unsympathetic when the media starts whining about why people don't trust them, about why people consider them fake news, about why they turn to fake news, because the media has nobody to blame but itself for the collapse in the public faith in, in, in journalistic institutions. Speaking of which, uh, in, a, in a related matter, the the New York the New Yorker magazine just came out with a story that says, uh, "Is Russian meddling as dangerous as we think?" Uh, just wondered what you what your reaction to that was, since they they essentially wrote this whole article, like eight thousand words long, describing you as pathological and crazy for for not not believing that story a couple of years ago. Right. I mean. The, the kind of, you know, a lot of people have revised and rewritten and whitewashed and lied about the trajectory of the few of us in journalism who were Russiagate skeptics, claiming that we affirmatively denied that the Russians had hacked or that they were doing bots and Facebook ads or whatever. When, of course, nobody ever said Russia didn't do it. Who would ever 
affirmatively, uh, you know, deny that Russia was involved. Of course, interfering in other countries' politics domestically is what all great powers do. The argument always was, A, I want to see evidence for it before I believe that the government before I believe the government's claim. But more importantly for me, I was always like, B, in the context of what governments and countries do to each other, this is penny anti stuff. Like fake Twitter accounts with 300 followers or Facebook ads that get liked by 170 people in the context of you know, an election in which billions of dollars are spent, this kind of quote-unquote meddling is trivial. It's trivial compared to what the U.S. does to other countries, but it's also trivial in the overall context. And that was really one of the main objections that that 8,000-word profile of me in The New Yorker had in 2018, which strongly insinuated that the only reason I was minimizing the importance of Russian involvement and the only reason I was refusing to see what every rational, sane, healthy person could see, which is that the Trump administration, the Trump campaign criminally colluded with Russia, was because I like had an angry childhood because I grew up gay and was angry at the world and always wanted to go to war with people and push back against what everybody could see because I want to be a contrarian and, you know, essentially psychoanalyzing me as a mentally unwell person for believing that Russia meddling was not this existential threat that the MSNBC, CNN, New York Times narrative insisted that it was. And so for two years later to see The New Yorker publish an article, a long rational article, essentially saying exactly that, that in the context of our elections, like maybe what Donald Trump says, or maybe what Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity say, or maybe what the like very well-funded DNC says, maybe that's kind of more important in U.S. political discourse than a few Russian Facebook ads and Twitter bots, which was one of the main cruxes of the Russiagate skepticism all along that got us read out of decent liberal society and even depicted as mentally unstable or traitorous. But yeah, but you're not really addressing one of the biggest pieces of evidence and most persuasive pieces of evidence, which is the Jesus masturbation memes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that has always been one exception that is yeah. obviously extremely significant. Um, what's your take on what's what's happening with the Assange trial and also the coverage of it, which has been almost non-existent outside of a couple of outlets? Hearing, I'm sorry, not trial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... It's ironic because the media has made a very flamboyant showing ever since Trump got elected of announcing that they would be these very vigilant soldiers safeguarding the sanctity of a free press. The Washington Post famously adopted a motto designed to signal that democracy dies in darkness. Um, Jim Acosta made a lot of money selling a book that depicted himself as this endangered, imperiled warrior because he stood up to a fascist regime, even though the worst thing that ever happened to him was that he had a few mean tweets written about him. So there really haven't been very many actual assaults on a free press unique to the Trump administration. There have been continuations of assaults that originated with the Obama administration, like prosecuting sources like Reality Winner and others. But there haven't really been any new ones except for one. And that one is the attempt to 
criminalized Julian Assange for the work that he did with his source based on an extremely pernicious theory that if you try and help your source evade detection and getting caught, which is what they claim he did when he tried to help her crack a password so that she could do what she was doing anonymously, that you actually become part of the criminal conspiracy. If this succeeds, this will be by far the greatest frontal assault on a free press, not just in the last four years, but within the last couple of decades. And yet the same media outlets that have made such a flamboyant showing of claiming that they're going to safeguard at all costs freedom of the press have barely paid any attention to this ongoing attempt to extradite and then prosecute and imprison Julian Assange in the United States for the crime of publishing top secret information in 2010 that revealed serious war crimes and other deceit and criminality on the part of the U.S. government because they don't really look at Julian Assange as being one of them. They don't really care. That's part of it. And the other part of it is that there are a lot of liberals, which I include the media, um, which now includes the media, and also sort of Democratic Party operatives and the like, who really do have this authoritarian strain. They believe that their political adversaries ought to be punished and imprisoned, that anyone who helped Donald Trump is basically a criminal. And since they see Julian Assange as somebody who helped Donald Trump, it's not just that they're indifferent to his imprisonment, they actually want it. They 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 hope he ends up in prison, even though the indictment has nothing to do with anything he did during the 2016 election. It's based exclusively on the 2010 leaks of the Reuters reporters being murdered by U.S. helicopters and, and all the leaks from Chelsea Manning. Um, there is a personal component to this for me, because when the Bolsonaro government earlier this year tri- indicted me, the theory that they used was it's the same one. Rep- was the same one. They copied the Trump administration's theory used against Assange, and the Bolsonaro government thought exactly that. Well, if the U.S. government can do this to Assange, how can we really pay any high price for doing the same thing to Glenn Greenwald? And that was the theory that they used: was that no, I didn't help my sources hack because they had already come to me for the first time when the hacking was complete. But that by helping them and orienting them on how to avoid detection, which is not just the right, but the duty of all journalists, I became part of the whole criminal conspiracy and therefore um, could be charged along with them for all of the felonies. That's how dangerous it is to a free press, what's going on in London. But media outlets, including, by the way, The Intercept, have completely ignored these proceedings. I mean, I've written about it and We've done some opinion pieces or analysis of it. We're not covering the trial, even though we should be, nor are any other large media outlets. Basically, we're relying on kind of independent bloggers um, to do it. I talked to Assange's lawyers and I got the list of the journalists who had requested credentials to cover the trial. And it's basically like Kevin Gustola and um, some YouTubers. And that's like basically it, you know, and it's really scandalous how the U.S. media has decided to ignore this. It's so ironic because one of the things that liberals pride themselves on is this concept, you know, I may not agree with you, but I'll fight to the death to defend your right to say it and how boorish and um, rule of law violating Donald Trump is and what a, you know, sage constitutional scholar um, Obama is. And they could totally use this as an example of that. But as you said, you know, because Obama decided not to move forward with this and Trump is and Pompeo is so gung ho about it. But 
they're not that committed to these things. And they do have this grudge against Assange because of 2016. And they're so, I mean, I'm really looking forward to, and I wonder if Trump's going to try to, to troll the Dems on this, even as he pursues um, Assange. Yeah, you know, one thing I do actually worry about um, is obviously there's been a, a, a very severe erosion on the left of a belief in free speech. It's now yeah. commonly believed that there are values higher than free speech that aren't just more important, but that justify its limitation and its restriction. Um, there was recently an email leaked to, ironically, Ben Smith, the New York Times, from the Diversity Committee of the Intercept Union that explicitly said that while, yes, free speech is important, it's not as important as anti-racism objectives, implying essentially that to the extent that free speech somehow is in tension with what they regard as anti-racism goals, we need to limit the free speech of our journalists in order to advance that agenda, which I think is a growing and common belief on the left. But what I really worry about more than that is there are kind of two primary claims being circulated now among both the liberals and the, and the left. And I think as the election approaches, the distinction between the left and what we call liberals is almost completely gone. I mean, I don't think there's much difference anymore between the messaging of, say, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Biden and Kamala Harris about the Trump administration and kind of what the Bernie wing is. They sound very similar to me at this point. And the two principles that are being endorsed, not just cynically for election purposes, but out of conviction, are number one, that anyone who supports the Trump presidency or the Trump campaign. So basically the way we define our primary political opposition, not tiny little pockets of extremism, but our primary political opposition is people who are fascist, Nazis, and white supremacist terrorists, domestic terrorists. Those are the people who are on the other side of the political divide from liberals and the left, basically Nazis, terrorists, and racist criminals. And number two, ongoing, that Russia is this existential threat to American democracy. So imagine if you're somebody who believes those things, as I really do believe that top-level Democratic operatives believe. I don't think they're just cynically uh, mm -hmm. disseminating that for political gain. I think they're doing that too, but I think they really believe it. Now you have the power in your hand, the power of the Justice Department, the power of the NSA, the power of the Pentagon. What are you going to do about domestic terrorists, meaning everybody that's kind of against your political project or Nazi white supremacist militias, not these tiny little pockets of people wanting to blow things up, but just anyone who sort of opposes what you regard as your anti-racist agenda. Or what are you going to do about Russia, the country that, that poses an existential threat to American democracy? I think that you're going to see a lot of very severe and authoritarian assertions of power in the name of combating those two threats. Um, and I do think there is a growing authoritarian strain among left liberalism in the United States that is manifesting in things like being perfectly fine if the Trump administration throws Julian Assange in prison because Julian Assange is somebody who helped defeat Hillary Clinton and therefore he belongs in jail. That is an authoritarian, even fascist mindset. And I think that um, is a pretty common view. You know how there are all these articles about like Trump's psychology? We should do a, like inside the mind of a liberal to, to analyze <laughs> and diagnose whether they believe it. 
like you were saying, Glenn, or they're just cynical. We should get tons of psychiatrists to write op-eds about it. That would be interesting. I would actually feel more comfortable if liberals didn't believe that, you know, if like they were being cynical about it as an right. election motivating strategy. But as I'm saying, listen to Ben Rhodes or listen to Susan Rice yeah. or listen to Kamala about Russia and about white supremacist terrorism, and you will not have any doubts that they are true believers in those propositions. I don't think Kamala is just because I don't think she's a true believer in anything. But, but those other two, I see. She definitely believes in the use of law enforcement to punish people she thinks deserve punishment. Yes. That's for sure. Right. I agree right, she right, believes yeah. in very little, but that I do believe she believes. She went on Tucker's Carlson show to talk about the possibility of using a pardon uh, and you caught a ton of flack for it. Can you walk us through your thought process on going on the show and what potential benefit there might be to, to doing a broadcast like that? So in 30 seconds, the president could pardon Julian Assange right now and, and end this. Is that correct? He could pardon him and Edward Snowden. And there's widespread support across the political spectrum on both the right and the left for doing both. It would be politically advantageous for the president. The only people who would be angry would be Susan Rice, John Brennan, Jim Comey and James Clapper, because they're the ones who both of them expose. So. You know, Donald Trump kind of on his own raised the possibility of a pardon of Edward Snowden about six to eight weeks ago and then was asked about it a second time and even was stronger about the possibility that he would. And then since then, it's kind of become clear why, which are people that have Trump's ear like Rand Paul and Congressman Matt Gates have been advocating for a pardon of Snowden on the grounds that he exposed what they consider to be the deep state spying apparatus that has been used against domestic opponents for abusive political ends, including during the 2016 campaign. So Edward Snowden is my source, as we just heard in that orgy of self-righteous sanctimony in the wake of the Ben Smith article, the highest duty of a journalist is to protect their source. Edward Snowden is my source. And so the opportunity to liberate him from exile where he's been for seven years in Russia and to make sure he doesn't spend the rest of his life imprisoned in one country, but can actually leave that country and freely travel the world, including coming back eventually to the United States, which is his home, is a very important goal of mine, professionally, ethically, and morally. He's not just my source, but also my friend. I care about that goal. I want that to happen. Um, and on top of that, there are people on the right who also think that the prosecution of Julian Assange is unjust. So I had actually, once Trump raised the possibility of pardoning over Snowden, I was thinking about how I could help make that happen. And I spoke to some people who are close to Trump, but I also know that going on Fox, the shows that Trump watches, and that means Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson show in particular, is a really effective way of speaking directly to the one person who holds the power of the pardon, which is the president. People have successfully gone on those shows and advocated for pardons in the past. Um, and so aside from what we, the three of us discussed the last time I was on your show about the obvious merit of being able to speak to 4 million people, which is the size of Tucker's audience, the biggest audience in cable by far, as opposed to deciding that you're not going to talk to them, you're going to purposely ignore them. Leaving aside that broad general proposition that I still believe in, I think it's my ethical duty to do what I can 
to end injustices in the world, such as the injustice of Edward Snowden being trapped in one country for having exposed things that Americans have the right to know, and the injustice of Julian Assange being prosecuted and um, extradited to the United States on espionage charges for revealing war crimes about the United States. And so when somebody offers me an opportunity to end an injustice and to make the world more just, I'm going to do that. And it's not even a close debate for me. I care a lot more about outcomes, about actually having my beliefs manifest as change in the world than I care about preening and posturing for the approval of LARPing online liberals. Um, so yeah, I could have said no to going on Tucker and said to Snowden, go fuck yourself. Sorry, you're just gonna have to spend you know, the rest of your life in Russia, I have the opportunity to try and help convince the person who can pardon you, but I'm going to deny that opportunity because I don't want to get my hands dirty or I don't want like liberals who never accomplish anything in their lives to criticize me on Twitter. Um, but obviously the ability to achieve outcomes, which is supposed to be the purpose of journalism and politics, not to like create a self-image of yourself or to posture and gesture as something that you pretend and to be online. Signal. Yeah, or to cosplay or virtue signal, but to actually have an effect on the world, which sometimes means being pragmatic and strategic and doing things that you might not otherwise want to do. To me, that's a much more important priority than you know impressing a bunch of uh, Twitter warriors. So it, for me, um, I was thrilled for the opportunity to have yeah. three minutes to talk directly to the president to make the case about why he should pardon both Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. Also, I mean, I, I tweeted about this jokingly. Some people didn't get it, but you know, you 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 refuse to go. You refuse the countless offers from CNN and MSNBC, right, to go on their shows and and talk about it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes gave the slightest shit about Julian Assange or Edward Snowden, which they don't, because their Democratic partisans only want to hear about. Trump being an orange Nazi. And so they don't cover things that their audience doesn't want to hear because that's how they keep their multi-million dollar contracts. But in a world where Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow actually cared about press freedom and covered Edward Snowden's pardon or Julian Assange's extradition and asked me to come on to talk about it, of course I would go on their, their inconsequential shows and do that, just like I would go on Wolf Blitzer's or Anderson Cooper or Don Lemon's inconsequential show and talk about it there too. But they don't ask me on because they don't allow dissent on those networks. The only thing they allow on those networks are people who go on with one message, which is Trump is evil and Democrats are good. So I would go on those shows, but I'm not asked on. Um, but even if I were asked on, I would still go on Tucker's in this case, because that's the show where you actually have an opportunity to make the world a better place. And reach the president. Right. Which is how you make the world a better place right. when you're advocating for a pardon by actually speaking to the one person <laughs> who has the power to pardon. About the idea of a debate hosted by Joe Rogan, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Because to me, from the outside, this seems like a classic example of how the Democrats keep setting traps for themselves uh, or keep misplaying political political opportunities. It's it's proposed. Trump immediately agrees. Now, clearly, what's going to happen is they're going to Biden's going to refuse, and he's going to lose all that audience immediately in, in the in the election coming up, or a lot of it. What's your thought about the reaction to the proposal of the Rogan thing, which I, I don't particularly take seriously, but the reaction is a story. Well, two things about this. I mean, number one is, you know, 
uh, Snowden went on Joe Rogan's show this week. It's the second time he went on. He went on 10 months ago as the first time. And that first time that he went on, on YouTube alone, 15 million people watched it. To say nothing of how many people listen to it on Spotify and the other podcast platforms where that program is available. But just on YouTube alone, 15 million people. It was three hours of Snowden basically monologuing. Um, fifth, just to give you an idea, the top-rated cable news show is Tucker Carlson's, which averages about three to four million people a night. So five times more people saw Edward Snowden on Joe Rogan than saw me on Tucker Carlson. He has a massive audience. But the more important difference is that there was just a Pew survey that came out that I know, Matt, you talked about on Twitter and so did I, which I think is incredibly both revealing and disturbing. It asked people, what is your primary source of news? For people who named MSNBC and the New York Times, I guess MSNBC is not really surprising, but the New York Times, I think, is, over 90% of the people who named that as their primary source of news identify as Democrats. So both MSNBC and, and, and the New York Times are talking almost exclusively to Democrats. They're just preaching to the choir. And then, obviously, conversely, people who named Fox News, it was a similar percentage to MSNBC, 95% or something, identify as Republicans with their prior choir preaching as well. Rogan, I guarantee you, if you ask people, what is your party identification? Probably a majority of his audience don't even have a party identification, or if they do, it's like a very kind of soft <laughs> identity, right? Like Joe Rogan, the only three candidates Joe Rogan spoke favorably of during the 2020 election were Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, and Trump. So there's no, right. I think he might've said a couple of good things about Andrew Yang as well. So he, you know, he, what, what his audience well, is. he had was, Yang on too. Yeah, he had Yang on. I think what he actually said was that every single candidate, including Biden, asked to go on his show. And the only ones he allowed on were Tulsi, Andrew Yang. And I don't think Bernie went on, but he would have allowed Bernie on. He did go on. And that, and that, then he was condemned. Bernie was condemned for being, you know, transphobic adjacent or something. Yeah. The point is that, you know, Rogan is just like this ideological heterodox guy. And I think, you know, there was this really brilliant tweet thread um, by this person who's become a friend of mine, Shant, Shant Mesrobian. I always mispronounce his name. Who, oh, think, Shant. Yeah, Shant. Yeah. And he had this thread about Joe Rogan where he basically said, look, somehow Joe Rogan in the minds of liberals has become this like Nazi, right? Like this alt-right fascist, literally, even though Joe Rogan is a liberal in every sense. He's, he, he's pro-choice. He's completely pro-gay rights. He is pro-trans uh, rights, even though he questioned whether trans people should be participate, trans women should be able to participate in male sports, which is whether that's fair, like a lot of, um, or rather whether trans women should be able to participate in, in female sports, whether a lot of people have asked that question, including Martina Navratilova, but he is liberal politically in every way. I mean, he, he loves Bernie. Um, but what Shant said was that he's culturally conservative by which he doesn't mean he's conservative on social questions. Cause again, he's pro gay rights, pro abortion, um, you know, you go down the list, but he's culturally conservative in the sense that like he tells risky jokes. He likes to hunt. He seems like kind of a bro. Right. 
And that his point was that for liberals- He's problematic. Yeah, that culture matters more than politics. The culture wars matter right. to them more that than politics. They don't actually politics. give a shit about politics, liberals. They don't care about rearranging material distribution or challenging corporatism or imperialism. What they care about are cultural signals. When the vast bulk of the- population are way more like Joe Rogan than they are like Kamala Harris. So, or Biden. Well, yeah, or Biden. Or like so talking about Joe Rogan like he's some kind of freakish deplorable is exactly the mistake they made in 2016 signaling to ordinary voters that we're not like you and we don't like you and we don't give a shit about you. Um but also I think there was a media component to it too, right? Which is it's just like with Assange. Like Assange has broken more historically important stories than pretty much every major news outlet combined about the war on terror. And they don't hate him despite that. They hate him because of that. They feel like he's not really one of us and therefore he shouldn't have that role. But he does, so we hate him. Same with Joe Rogan. They're like, we went to journalism school. We know the in and outs of politics. Why does he have a, an audience of 15 million people, mm -hmm. but only like 30,000 people watch my YouTube program? It's jealousy and anger and like insular elite resentment. Um, and I do think, imagine how much better the discourse would be if at least one of the debates was with just like regular people who think like ordinary Americans instead of you know, these like professional journalists who have spent all their lives in TV studios in New York and Washington, of course, it would be a much better place. But they're so, you know, aggressively protective of their entitlement. No, it's we who control the discourse, not people like Joe Rogan, that the idea of letting Joe Rogan do something as prestigious as hosting a presidential debate was unthinkable to them. I mean, what was so amazing about that, and that you're, you're, you're exactly right, the the way we do debates now is a process that's evolved between politicians and you know sort of upscale DC journalists. And it's like a it's like a dialogue between a very narrow insular group of people um, that is a language that really only they speak. Uh, and Rogan asks questions the way an ordinary person would ask, right? And so that the idea that that's an unacceptable form of political dialogue which is almost the universal assessment of everybody in, in journalism, right? It, it just, to me, it speaks to how completely out of touch everybody is with what actual voters think. I, and again, I don't know, it's amazing to yeah. me that they're making that mistake again. While also saying that this is an unprecedented existential threat that we're facing, all hands on deck, the priority should be defeating this person. Like I always say, you can be a total snob and have nothing but contempt for these people but you still in theory want to defeat Trump. So why are you condemning everyone that's not already with you? Yeah, I mean, it gets back oh, to like there being yeah. no principles among liberals, right? So it was amazing to watch that Bernie was, I mean, really attacked and not just by Biden operatives or DNC operatives or near attendant, but apparently reportedly incredibly from what I hear, like even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, were incredibly angry that he touted the endorsement of Joe Rogan. Like when you're running for president, the last thing you want is somebody who's supporting you who speaks to 15 million ordinary Americans. Like that's apparently a terrible thing. But then Michael Bloomberg comes out and endorses Joe Biden or fucking Rick Snyder who oversaw 
uh, oh, poisoning of water God. in Flint or Bill Crystal and David Frum and Democrats cheer and celebrate these endorsements, even though Michael Bloomberg and Rick Snyder and David Frum and Bill Crystal have done infinitely more evil in the world than Joe Rogan could do in a 10,000 lifetimes. Um, so that's, I think, goes back to Sean's point, which is it's always culture first and politics last, right? So Rick Snyder is like was elected a governor. He kind of speaks like a governor. Bill Crystal and David Frum are like pseudo-intellectuals who speak that language. But Joe Rogan's like a bald guy who tells politically incorrect jokes and goes hunting and is like a douchebag on YouTube. MMA, yeah. Yeah, and, and likes MMA fighting. So he's not one of us and therefore has no right to occupy that role. I have to give the Biden campaign a shout out and the, um, because you so frequently the kind of racism that Biden types and his supporters embrace is like an imperialism and abroad. Um, like, you know, someone like from, for instance, so these neocons who have cheered on the deaths of countless brown people abroad. But I'm very impressed that they actually touted the endorsement of, of Snyder, whose racism has been much more domestic. Um, I think it shows a real versatility. Yeah, I mean, it, it is amazing that if you were to pinpoint the most egregious and destructive act of actual systemic racism in the United States in the last decade, maybe since the Bush administration's indifference about the drowning of New Orleans, you would look mm -hmm. at the poisoning of the water in Flint, which people decided not to care about because Flint is primarily African-American. By far, the number one villain is Rick Snyder, who's now being embraced by the Biden campaign as somebody who they're, whose endorsement they're proud to have. Right. And that is just, it's the reason why liberals are so repulsive. They don't have any fixed beliefs. They weaponize everything yeah. cynically. Yeah. And they're so transparent about it. And then at the same time, so sanctimonious about who they are, right? right? Like, I remember like Lee Atwater, who of course was like a scumbag political operative, kind of like reveled in the fact that that's what he was, right? Like Roger Stone is sort of the same way. Like they're totally amoral scumbags, but they kind of admit it. They don't really pretend otherwise. Liberals are exactly the same. They have zero principles. They weaponize everything against their enemies and then ignore and give license to whoever's on their side. But then at the same time are so self-righteous about who they are and that's what makes them uniquely repulsive we saw this with trump making fun of hillary unbelievably enough for using super predators he said that during a debate i'm sure and they kind of said that in fact matt we had a drinking game during the rdnc and rnc and one of the things we predicted to drink to was trump like going after biden within the same speech from both the left and the right and because they're so devoid of principles, they are so easy to go after for being hip hypocrites. And just going back to Bernie quickly, one of the reasons I always thought Bernie was better matched against Trump, not just because I obviously prefer his politics, but just in terms of um, electability was because he doesn't have those things. Like he is the most, he is extremely consistent for the most part. And his enemies call him stubborn and his enemies mock him for not changing his ideas. Though I don't know why you would change Medicare for all. As a, as a right when it's still not a right. But Matt, are you laughing because I brought it back to Bernie? No, 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 it's okay, go ahead, you're, you're rolling. Uh, I've been so good. It makes the Dems such an easy target. Again, just to kind of emphasize, as you said, it's not that Rick Snyder, who has blood all over his hands and has the lead poisoning 
and deaths and um, brain damage all over his hands. It's not just that he endorsed Biden. It's that the Biden campaign saw it fit to publicize that and tout it. And and the same people who attacked Bernie for touting Joe Rogan endorsement had nothing to say about that. Yeah, like where is their problem problem problematic dometer or something? Like we should do a, a chart. What's problematic and what isn't? Yeah. yeah. Last thing for me, Glenn, I mean, we've had you on a long, a long time already, but did you want to comment on the, the tablet magazine article about left-wing heretics? Uh, you and I were both identified in, in that as well, but it seems like it's a subject that's kind of gotten a little bit of steam on, on the right lately. Yeah, you're going to get me in trouble, Matt, because like the whole first part of the article is about a pretty ugly confrontation that took place between two of my colleagues. I'm going to try and steer clear of that, although I may not succeed, but Sure. Um, I think that, you know, one of the interesting things that has happened is, and, and I think we, we, I think this is one of the things I realized as I've kind of like done this work for a longer period of time is that who your alliances are at any given moment in politics are so easily subject to being changed because the dominant political debates that emerge change as well. And so who you agree with vehemently one year, three years later, you may view as your enemy or your adversary because the debates that have taken center stage have become much different. And obviously in the wake of the George Floyd murder, there has been this huge cultural change about how we speak, about what our discourse is, about how our discourse is governed, um, about how much dissent we ought to tolerate. And so I think that one of the things that happened, and I think this is already starting to happen with Russiagate, where there was kind of a you know, split between people who were basically saying, I consider myself a journalist, but I'm going to interpret political stories not based on what I see journalistically, but based on what I want to be true as a partisan or what helps my side. And then there were other people who said, I'm going to do this journalistically. I'm going to view this as what I think is true, independent of which side it helps or which side it hurts, because I don't actually work for the RNC or the DNC. So that's not my job. My job is to be a journalist. And that already started kind of creating a realignment where people on the right and left who decided to look at these kind of stories through that journalistic lens found common cause. I think the same thing is happening now even more so when it comes to the question of how much dissent is tolerated on questions like how we think about race, how we think about Black Lives Matter protest movement and Antifa, and whether or not we're going to be this kind of political movement that instantly ejects anybody who deviates in any way from the prevailing pieties and brand them as not just somebody who's mistaken or misguided or in error, but somebody who's personally bad who is racist or a white supremacist or a fascist or a nazi even though you blatantly have none of those views or anywhere near them because it's like a recrimination or a punishment that is now doled out or a kind of enforcement mechanism to ensure that people don't question these orthodoxies and i think you're seeing a lot of common ground among people on the right and on the left who regard those tactics as increasingly repressive and dangerous. It was hearkening back to what I was describing earlier as just authoritarian strain among left liberalism in the United States to think 
the more righteous people start to believe their causes, the fewer constraints they have, moral constraints, ethical constraints, or any other kind on the tactics they believe are permissible in pursuit of that agenda. And so I think that that tablet article was essentially a way of saying, look, we on the right have long assumed that people on the left or in liberalism are this monolith, but in reality, there's, there's this really vibrant debate taking place where a lot of people on the left and in and, and liberalism are refusing to submit to these repressive dictates about how you have to talk and how you have to think and are willing to question what is really a very profound change in our society that's infecting every major institution, academia, journalism, the corporate world, people are being indoctrinated with these philosophies in their workplaces and being forced to accept them. Think tanks, politics. Yeah, think tanks, politics, every institution essentially. It's not just confined to like say college campuses or whatever. It's a major societal change and therefore requires debate. But I think one of the, you know, I don't want to be too um, kind of self-congratulatory about it because I do think that one of the things that's happened is that when you have an economy where jobs are disappearing by the millions, and obviously in journalism, it's at least as bad, if not worse, than most other places, it is very, very difficult, maybe even impossible in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of what really is a depression, to stick your head up and start questioning pieties in a way that you know is going to jeopardize your job. Um, And so I think in a lot of ways, those of us who have the luxury of being independent and secure relatively, not entirely, but relatively from those kinds of pressures kind of have an obligation to lead the way in creating the space where that kind of dissent and that kind of questioning can take place. And so you get called a bunch of names, you get unfollowed, you get you know, booted out of certain circles, but who cares? Like you can put your head on your pillow at night um, with a clean conscience that you have the integrity of your convictions and haven't been bullied or coerced into saying things that you don't really believe. And I think, you know, that's split that we're now seeing on the liberal left and it can really foster an interesting political realignment um, among people who simply believe in the virtues of free discourse. Excellent. Uh well, that's all I have. Kate, Katie, do you have one more thing? Yeah, I got a little lightning round that you can choose from. A uh, couple questions. Do you think that it's a coincidence that New York Mag has this piece about Ben Smith out this week, an intelligencer? Any thoughts on Woodward's decision not to reveal the uh, Trump comments on COVID until now? Um, any thoughts on, is it, is, is it a coincidence that Rich Esposito and Matt Cole were involved in the Kiriakou and reality winner stories. And Matt has outed himself as supporting um, Biden over Trump. Want to know if you were publicly um, speaking about your position on the general. Is that like an a la carte? Can he just choose? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll do them all quickly. Um, I just have a policy like I don't say who people sure. should vote for just because I prefer to just give the information and let people decide themselves. Yeah, I just feel right. like it's almost like a little pompous, not saying Matt does this, but like when people are like, I endorse this person. So I, and I also just try to like not be too connected to a particular politician so that I can critique them safely. Um, yeah. As far as New York Magazine, Except for Putin, Smith, your boy, your boyfriend Putin. Yeah, exactly. He, I, I confess my undying admiration and love for, but other than him, because of the romantic relationship that I have with the Russian right. leader, you're, you're that's exclusive. the principle that yeah. I, yeah. 
as far as like New York Magazine and Ben Smith, I just think there's like a growing dissatisfaction concern about Ben Smith ever since he attacked like Ronan Farrow. And what is he going to use his platform for at the New York Times? Who, which, which like sacred cows is he going to come after? And so I think there was like a kind of sense of maybe we should turn the spotlight on him, which is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Matt Cole and Rich Esposito are concerned, you know, any conspiracy theories about how, like, Rich Esposito did go on to work for the New York City Police Department. He's now its spokesman. But, the you know, I worked with them during the Snowden reporting. That's how I got to know them. Um, you know, it's very common that journalists go and become spokesperson for government entities. It doesn't mean that, like, all along in journalism, they were, like, sleeper cells for the government serving as honey traps to collect sources. Um, you know, I worked with Matt Cole, uh, I think he made mistakes in the reality winner story. He thinks so himself, but any suggestion that they're kind of like nefarious agents um, is very similar to the kind of people who go around accusing everybody of being Kremlin spies. As far as Bob Woodward is concerned, I, I don't know. I mean, you can make an argument that he should have said it earlier. Um, you can make an argument that journalists have the right to do their journalism in book form without like serializing it as they go along. I don't think it would have made a difference one way or the other. Um, It's not something I really care about. And last thing, can you, you know, Snowden and Assange both really need all the help that they can get. And I'm just saying that as someone who's in touch with them, you may want (laughs) to, they would be idiots if they did not go on useful idiots. I've made that clear to both of them. I mean, Assange is a little bit, um, difficult to reach given that he's in a high security prison reserved for terrorists and serial rapists and murderers. But I have repeatedly called Snowden an idiot for not yet going on useful idiots. So hopefully my bullying of him <laughs> will eventually change that. Awesome. All right. Glenn, thank you so much. We've kept you on forever. Good talking to you guys. Take care. Bye, Glenn. Bye. I like that shirt. That was great. I learned a lot. I learned it that. It was great. I like Glenn's learn? shirt a lot. It had like a very angry man good. cowboy yeah, thing to it. I've never been able to pull off the shoulder patches thing. What else did you learn? I learned about how Glenn processes um, being hated. I learned that you and Glenn were in a tablet article, which I didn't know. I learned that everyone should be ordering useful idiots mugs. By the way, I have no skin in the game. I don't get compensated when people do this. I'm just trying to spread the culture of useful idiots. Um, I do. I also want to encourage people to be good, useful idiots. Rate and review us on iTunes. Yes, Subscribe to us and like us on YouTube. Uh, all right. That was good. Yeah. Well, rate and review us. Thanks for listening. And we'll, uh, we'll see you again next week. Yeah. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.